Well, good morning, church. Kids, you get to stay in class this morning. I'm your teacher, and I'm also your parents' teacher. Uh, hey, I wanted to give special welcome to someone. Um, I was on the phone yesterday, which isn't abnormal to just chat with this friend of mine on a periodic basis. Um, what's abnormal is that he's sitting in church with us, with his entire family, and the reason it's abnormal is they live in Mexico. Hurley's, stand up, and welcome to Hurley's. Really good to see you guys, uh, especially the whole family. Jonathan comes up here for work, so you're old half, buddy, but the rest of you, really good to see you in the flesh. Um, let me just say that if God ever moves you away, uh, we love that you come back and visit us and get to see with us. Uh, you're in our thoughts and prayers, and so to see you in the flesh is really, really fun. Well, as probably most of you know, there's an event coming up uh, very quickly that um, kind of gathers the whole nation together and puts their attention on one single thing. Uh, and I'm, of course, talking about Chinese New Year. Um, so that starts officially on Tuesday, and millions and millions and millions of Chinese, not only in China, but around the world, will be focused on... Oh, Super Bowl too. Yeah, 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 there's that as well. But uh, anyone a Patriots fan? Anyone willing to publicly acknowledge that? Okay. All right, a couple. <laughs> they just kind of sheepishly, they're like, if you've been a long, diehard fan, good for you. I mean, this is crazy run that they've been going on. Some of you are like, please move on. I will grant your wish. Um, all right, so cookies are being made in the kitchen, and, and mom tells you kids this specific thing. I saw the look on your face. That's how I feel about chocolate chip cookies. She's making them undefiled, so there's no nuts in these at all, just pure chocolatey uh, cookie amazingness, and she makes it crystal clear to you. These cookies are for tonight. Not for dinner, but after dinner, and so no touching. Then mom gets called out to an errand really quick. What do you do? See, the fact that someone immediately happens to be one of our elders' wives just said, eat the cookies. And the fact that her son is gleaming in the back with his hand raised means I'm in the company of sinners. I am in the company of people who are tempted to sin. How do these cookies smell? Amazing, right? I mean, you're tempted by all these different senses going on. And, and you really, really want these cookies. Now, there's something in pop culture that we've all experienced, and that is a little angel on one shoulder and a little devil on the other shoulder. And what is that sort of trying to communicate? Good and bad, right? What kind of conversations do they have? Who do they represent? Other people or your own self? How does that work? Okay, kind of your internal head, your voice is going back and forth. What is the angel saying to you on your shoulder in this moment? You guys aren't that convinced. All right, we're going to get into the scriptures. I'm going to tell you what the angel said. Don't touch! I mean, mom said it couldn't be more clear. There's nothing else to discuss. Do not touch. Are we clear on that? All right, now what is the little devil on your shoulder saying to you in your head? Eat them all, but, but that's a little bit bold and frontal assault. How does the angel in your head talk, actually? I mean, the devil. Just one. Now, let me tell you something. These look pretty lined up and on a path, but what if they're sort of stacked on a plate? And unless mom took the time to count, which you know your mom, she did not take the time to count. Do you think that you're more tempted if one were missing... 
and mom would never find out about it? I'm more tempted that way. Just one. What could it hurt? What else does the devil say on your shoulder in this moment? What's that internal voice telling you? Yeah, I I mean, it smells so good. Anything else? That's right. Mom said no touching, but if you go to the original language, and and sort of what she really meant by it was don't touch all of them. Just the one you're going to eat, right? I mean, there's all kinds of dialogue that might go on between these two, uh, you know, figurative angel and devil on your shoulder. We all have this experience. A part of what that is, is your conscience. Conscience means quite simply this, with knowledge. God has given you knowledge of what's right and wrong. And so with full knowledge, you're being tempted and you're wrestling. If this were not wrong, you wouldn't wrestle. They smell good. They're free for the taking. You know that. You take one. There's no wrestling match. Why are you wrestling in the first place? Because God's given you a conscience. So with knowledge, knowing what you should do and what you shouldn't do, you're being tempted and wrestling with this. Now, let me tell you this. God gifted you with authority. People of every age in this room, that's a countercultural message. God has gifted you with authority. Parents reflect God and they use their authority given by God to train up their children, to teach them the joys of boundaries, to teach them the joy of delayed gratification, and to rejoice in the love and the trust and the relationship that builds when a command is given and a command is received and obeyed. Ephesians 6 1 says this Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Really simple, really straightforward. Now, this isn't always how it goes, right? Children sometimes take the cookies. Furthermore, they sometimes lie when confronted about whether they took the cookies or not. Parents sometimes use their authority for their own immediate comfort comfort, and what's easiest on them rather than to serve their children. Parents sometimes come down hard on their children in the name of instruction, but really it's in their own anger. They've been violated. They've been disrespected. And so they come down harder than they should. This is why Ephesians goes on to say this. Fathers, what? Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let me just say this, that God gifts parents as the first authority to train us up and be gifted with authority. Provides covering, it provides instructions, provides clear boundaries which are for the children's good gives honor to God. It brings glory to the picture. Sin shatters the picture. What happens when you drop a picture frame and it shatters? There's sharp edges all over. Just in the cleanup process, you can cut yourself. Sin shatters the picture of God-given authority and loving, trusting obedience and resting in that authority. You know what grace does? Grace heals the wounds that shattered shards of the picture produce in our soul 
And you know what truth does? Truth has this way of putting the picture back together so we can see it again for what it is. I want to start there because what we're going to talk about this morning is about uh, temptation. Here's a fact of life. And I think every generation in this room represented would shake their head at this. Fresh-baked cookies and parents telling you no never, ever goes away in this life. The names change. Here's how the names change. It's not always your parents. It's sometimes a teacher. It's sometimes your coach. It's sometimes your boss. It's sometimes the police. It's sometimes the president. So the names change. And it's not always cookies, right? But parents telling you, wait, do not touch, and cookies tempting you to eat them will always, always be there. The rest of your life, you'll be tempted to break the law, go your own way, defy authority, and eat cookies before you're allowed to. Handling temptation is what I'm calling this morning's message. Now, honestly, how many of you would want to grab this apple and take a giant bite? You can see just enough of this apple to see that that's gross. That is a disgusting apple. You don't want to eat it. Let me say this outright. Sin is gross. All sin is gross. I'm praying that one of the things that this morning happens is you are reawakened to the stench of sin. To the weight of what it is to break relationship with your loving Heavenly Father and rebel and go your own way. Sin has this absolutely remarkable ability to play dress up and to trick us all. To make it look like we'd be missing out not to grab this thing and take a full-on bite. We don't ever see what's on the backside until later. Now think about it for a second. Why did I pick an apple? Why did I pick a rotting apple for this image? Eli, what do you got? Real loud, what? Kind of represents sin. How about a very specific sin mentioned in the Bible? Adults, help out. Why is, why is an apple up there? Abby. Adam and Eve in the garden. Was it an apple? We don't know. But it was a, it was a, it was a fruit, right? And so that's sort of traditionally we've always sort of put an, an apple to it. I want to take our brains back to Adam and Eve for a moment because being tempted in the garden by the serpent calls to mind sort of the, the bigger picture that is going on. And when you think about it, all law-breaking, all rebellion, all defiance, when you are engaged in those activities, law-breaking, rebellion, defiance, you are keeping company with Satan. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. So in the beginning, God, God what? He created all that is seen, and he created all that is unseen. He created all that is seen, so mountains and leaves and bacon and the hair of the person sitting in front of you. He created all that. In addition, he created things that are unseen to us. Just as he created heavenly bodies, he created spiritual beings and spiritual bodies. So he creates angels, and there's an angel that rebels against God. It's Satan. He wants to become God. He wants to be worshipped, and so he rebels. A third of the angels are banished with him, 
because of the pride that Satan rises up to challenge God with. Satan was created to obey God, and he defied God. Satan was created to worship God, like all beings, and he demanded instead to be worshipped. Satan was created to be dependent on God, and instead he went his own way. He became independent and went his own way. Luke chapter 4, verse 1, I want you to read with me. And as we move from sort of the beginning of creation, from the garden, we pick up and we see Satan doing what Satan does, tempting and trying the things of God. Luke chapter 4, verse 1, reads as follows. Verse 1 of chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So that's where we pick up this temptation. Let me tell you where we're going the next couple of weeks. There's sort of a double header of testing going on. First, temptation. He faces Satan in the wilderness. Next week, we're going to look at this. He's going to go home, and he's going to face the testing of rejection. He's going to go home, and his own friends and family are going to reject him. Let me tell you this, that testing comes sometimes in temptation to sin. Eat the cookie. Sometimes it comes as a different form of a test, and that is when you're rejected, where will you run to? When you think about it, life is sort of an ongoing test. And all of us who are called by God to follow God will endure testing. God never tempts us with evil. Get that really clear in your head. God never tempts us into evil. But he does allow testing. And he allows testing so that we can graduate into greater likeness of Jesus. Let me show you a picture of how this looks. Will you run to me, God says? Will you depend on me? Will you stay with me? Or will you go your own way, take shortcuts, and seek your own will? That's what temptation looks like in all of its varied forms. How about rejection? When the people that you thought were your closest allies betray you and turn out to be enemies... Will you chuck your relationship with the Heavenly Father and cling to what you have known? Or will you follow me even when you're rejected by people that were supposed to be your closest allies? Here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. Jesus passed the test. I'll spoil the ending of Luke 4. He passes the temptation. And not only that, he goes on to greater testing. I would call the end of his life finals. Finals week, right? He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Another garden, another temptation, same root source. It's the enemy of your soul. Satan comes to him in the garden. And Jesus passes the test. And then when you think about the rejection that goes on in that final week, one of his closest allies, one of the twelve, Judas betrays him all the way to death. Doesn't just stop following him. Doesn't start writing some evil blogs about him. He betrays him for some money. 
to his own death. Jesus passes both of those tests. Before looking at sort of each of the three individual temptations on their own, I want you to think about this thought. Satan sort of tries three different fronts, but he's attacking a very, very similar core idea, and that is he's attacking Jesus' identity. Two times he says this, if you are the Son of God. A second time, if you are the Son of God. And with the other temptation, he says this, break relationship with the Father by worshiping me. So in all three areas, there's different varied ways of looking at these three temptations, but all three of them cut to the core of who Jesus is. Now think about this for just a second. Whether you were there last week or whether you know in your Bibles what just happened in Luke, what's the context of this temptation happening? What just happened? Jesus just got baptized. What happens at Jesus' baptism? There's something really powerful and really public that goes on. This is a a public inauguration ceremony. We see the Trinity uh, present in a very unique way. The voice of the Father calls out from heaven and in a very short, succinct way gives to Jesus, catch this, fathers, what every son longs to hear from dad. Love and validation. You're my beloved son. I delight in you. And you're okay, kid. You're doing great. You're accepted by me. I approve of you. How many lost men today are longing to hear that? Because dad never gave that to them. What does God do? God gifts that to Jesus. And he does it publicly. Now, right on the heels of this glory being given to Jesus as he starts his public ministry, and it's really clear from the Holy Spirit being there in the dove, the voice coming from heaven, and the validation that says, this is my beloved son. Oh, by the way, there's a paternal test that Luke throws in called a genealogy that makes it a matter of public record that this Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, the unique promised Messiah, the Son of God. Right on the heels of that, he's led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And what does Satan come after? His identity as the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. Notice that everything that God has affirmed, Satan tries to negate. Friends, this hasn't changed in all the centuries. Everything God affirms, Satan's going to try and come and counter, question, undo, negate. I've sort of laid out this morning, you could lay this out a lot of different ways, but temptation one has to do with provision. Temptation two has to do with power. And temptation three has to do with protection. I'll throw slides up so you don't have to remember that. But each time, the answer Jesus gives is this. He authoritatively and out loud speaks forth what God's already given to him. He quotes the Bible. So notice that going in as we read this passage, that that he just out loud speaks what God has already given to him. You know, it's powerful. The things he quotes are sitting in your Bible right now. If you have a Bible app, that means everywhere you go, you're always on call to be able to be reached by text or phone or by phone call. Everywhere you go, you have these words that Jesus had access to and, and spoke forth out loud and authoritatively in our pockets. So let's take a look at these three temptations. Number one is a temptation of provision. 
Look at verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. There's the temptation. Doesn't even seem that insidious, does it? On the surface? And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Make bread, Jesus. You're hungry. Use your power to, to meet this need. This is so sneaky. Notice again the attack on identity. If you are the Son of God. Already proven. Already a settled fact. Still goes after it. But sort of underlying that is he attacks the expectations. Is this really how a son is treated? That you would go without need? Again, the little devil on the shoulder doesn't say, Eat the cookie! It sort of goes back door a little bit, doesn't it? Your mom loves you. She wouldn't want you to have to have your stomach grumble and have to wait. That's not how she treats her kids. Just take the cookie. There's sort of an expectation. Is this how the Messiah should be treated? Also notice this. He's tempting Jesus to produce a legitimate need, which is physical food. Is Jesus entirely human and entirely God? Yes. Which means Jesus got hungry. So it's a legitimate need. But he's asking him to produce it in an illegitimate way. Which at its core is this, trust in your own power, in your own timing. So really underneath hunger, underneath miracles, underneath bread and stone, is this idea of trust. Are you going to trust the Father for your provision, or are you going to trust in yourself for your provision? Being hungry is not wrong. Making bread, not wrong. Performing miracles, not wrong. Even performing miracles, making bread. Not wrong. How do we know? Because Jesus did that later on. Jesus, the bread of life. Provided for people's sustenance this way. So he's putting forth to Jesus, and this is so common in our life. This is a legitimate need. But getting a legitimate need met in an illegitimate way or in an illegitimate timetable makes it sin. Jesus' answer clues us into where the lie is. He says this, man shall not live on bread alone. Jesus is saying, I'm more than my physical appetites. And frankly, my deepest needs are not met by the next meal. It's not met by gratifying my flesh. It's met by the Father in a deeper way. In fact, Matthew adds this to his response, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Man won't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds that comes from the mouth of God. Here's a question for us. When you and I are tempted to doubt God to provide for our needs, will we grumble like Israel? Remember, that's what they did. Will we trust in our own power, even if it means moving ahead of God? Or, like Jesus, will we trust on God's timing and on God's provision? I'll tell you one of the great temptations for us in America. It's not that we don't have provision. It's we're sick of the kind of provision we have. Doesn't that sound like Israel? And we had better food back in Egypt. Let's go back into slavery so we can get some steak and some really, really good food. So we get sick of the food that we have. We get sick of the provision that we have. We become a thankless people. 
One of the things about praying for our spiritual siblings around the world is to think about this. There are people today being tested in the poorest of the poor countries around provision. You know what it is for us? God, at the Super Bowl party today, help me not to overindulge. God, help me to lose this weight. God, help me to know what to do with all this excess. God, help me not to be tempted to eat more than I should. And what are people in the poorest of the poor being tempted around provision? God, help me not to doubt that you will supply my basic need of meeting my stomach's hunger right now. God, I don't feel safe again tonight. I don't have a safe, dry place to lay my head. Help me not to doubt you. Help me not to be tempted into thinking that you wouldn't provide and look out for my basic needs. Just praying for our spiritual siblings around the world provides perspective on some of our difficulties that we're tempted with day in and day out. Temptation number two is power. Look at verse 5. It says, To you I will give this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Verse 7. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Kids, this is going to be hard to grab hold of. You can talk to your parents later on about what this means. But for all of your life, you will be tempted towards selfish ambition and vain glory. You'll be tempted for selfish ambition. And what you see is this, that this is demonic and it wreaks havoc in companies in relationships, in churches, and in families. When you trace back to families that have blown apart, sports teams that have blown apart, they had such a good thing going, companies that split, you trace it back to these root sins of selfish ambition, vain glory. What do both of those have? Pride as their foundation. God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. You will find yourself working against God and for demonic forces and a demonic wicked system when you become proud. How profound is the sin of pride, church, in each of us? Most of you, kids, are going to work a job someday. Sometimes you're paid by a company and you have to file taxes and all that. Sometimes you're paid by the Lord because you just work your tail off at home and you're building a, a house, running a household and building a family and, and, and being a stay-at-home parent. As you work your job, particularly in the workplace, and for students, I would say that your job right now is your school, Think if this rings true at all. First temptation was for provision. Satan tempts you on the job in the school to trust in your own power to satisfy your needs and to meet your goals rather than to depend on what God provides. In the workplace, selfish ambition 
will wreak havoc on walking in the rhythms of what God's provided, the path that God has provided. This one's tempting towards power. Any power struggles at your company? Any politics that seem a little bit unchristlike? Anywhere that the light of truth could come and actually make things a whole bunch better? If I was preaching in a black church right now, there would be hoops and hollers. There would be, there would be large response. We know this is true, right? I mean, this is everywhere. It's the frustration some of you feel of going back to work tomorrow. If it wasn't for these politics and this constant corporate climbing and the backbiting and, and grabs for power, I would love this job. But that's all waiting for you Monday as well. On the job, Satan tempts you to switch allegiance to people who flatter you with promises of shortcuts to power and glory rather than to go God's way in a truthful, slow, steady pace. Any deal with Satan includes what verse 7 starts with, if you then. All this is yours. And then what's the fine print? If only, right here. This is what it's going to cost you. So Satan includes the if you then. And what's the cost? It's to switch allegiance from one Lord that is offering authority, co-ruling, and glory alongside with him for another Lord, lower case L, who is offering co-ruling and authority and glory. Do you see it? Satan and God the Father are offering exactly the same thing. What's the short-term gain and, and, and cost? The short-term cost of going with the Father is the cross. That's what's looming a few short years away. Long-term gain, you reign with the Father forever. What's the shortcut Satan is offering? Glory with no cost. No cross, no pain, no suffering, no separation from the Father, not taking the sin of the world on your shoulders, not walking these next three years and being rejected not only by your closest loved ones, but by all of society and ultimately murdered, falsely accused. That's what's being offered. Friends, this shows up all over your school career. This shows up all over your friend circles. This shows up all over being a tenant in the place you're trying to get into, the job you're trying to apply for, or the job that you already have that you want to climb the, the, the ladder to. This is everywhere. The temptation to switch allegiance and take the shortcut and go with those who flatter and promise immediate glory. What does Jesus do? He keeps the main thing, the main thing, the number one command. He says, you worship God alone. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Later on when asked what the greatest commandment was, what did he say? Same thing, right? You keep the main thing, the main thing. You look at the big picture, the big story. You go, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not trading that for anything. I've already got the most valuable thing you could offer me on this planet. I'm not trading it for anything. 
In fact, I'm not going to entertain the thoughts of what might be the loopholes or could I have both. It's been clear to me, you can't have both. I've already made the great trade. I'm not, I'm not letting go of that. Let's look at uh, temptation number three. Temptation number three could be said a few different ways, but I'm going to pick the word protection. Verse nine says this, and he took him, meaning Jesus, to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, there it is again, throw yourself down from here for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan sort of catches on to the pattern of what Jesus is doing. So he says, okay, I can, I can play that game. Let me quote some scripture to you. Of course, Satan does it with his own special twist. He takes those scriptures and he uses it as an occasion to test God instead of an occasion to trust God. Here's a little tip for all of us. Don't just give yourself, don't just give your family to someone who can play Bible quiz better than anyone else around them. They might be full of head knowledge and not living it. There are people that you might listen to and benefit from on podcasts and in books and whatnot. I've always found it so powerful to be mentored by uh, people who died hundreds of years ago. But one of the things I often do, I read tons of biographies. You know why? I can't be with that person and sort of know what their life was like. Here's what, here's what getting to know a person is about. A, you don't follow them like they're Jesus because you go, huh, phenomenal preacher, kind of a terrible husband. Didn't mean he didn't work out. It didn't mean he didn't have things, but he just had some real gaps there. But boy, I sure see a picture of living in the Holy Spirit um, of, of grace and trust and, and walking with that and being open and accountable to that. There are people who know the scriptures really, really well, and you guys know this. You can know the Bible and not know God, right? And the fruit of that ultimately leads to death. Satan proves that. You can know the Bible and not know God. So be careful who you give yourself to. Jesus gives us a really straightforward principle to follow, by the way. Someone quotes the Bible to you. You know what Jesus answers with? He answers with more Bible. The Bible says this. Mm -hmm. It also says this. I was on jury duty. Uh, Shockingly, my number got called to go up there and they began to interview me and they found out who I was and they asked me, what do you do and all that. I'm sort of just praying going, like I'm sort of mixed, right? I'm sort of like, God, maybe you would use me on a jury to put forth your glory and bring forth justice. Like that's a unique way in our country that you get to serve that way. Um, if, if I don't get chosen, I get a ton of time back and I get to do these other things that I would normally choose to do. So I felt really open-handed with it. So I'm just up there praying and sort of fascinated a little bit by the proceedings. And then it pretty, pretty soon it gets boring because like they just repeat things a million times. So I'm there and, um, and I get chosen to be one of the jurors, um, like sort of the, the final kind of whittles down. I'm sort of one of the final, um, people and now they begin to pepper questions and, and ask things. And one of the lawyers comes to me, and, and um, I had sort of a, the lion's share of questioning came to me. And this person came, and he began to quote scripture to me. He said, I grew up in the church. And he said, my pastor, da 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 And Jesus said, da 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 And what was so powerful is this. 
He was painting a picture that would say this. That because you follow Jesus, you would, you would never convict someone of wrongdoing. Because of grace. And so I'm sitting there just sort of listening to him, receiving him, And again, really opening to God, I didn't want to answer in this moment. And here's what I, here's what I realized. As he was talking, um, I brought another scripture. I said, so the Bible also says this, this, this. And this. And what I tried to do was this. In a winsome, gracious, truthful way, I tried to point out his own hypocrisy. Because one of the things that they kept calling for over and over and over is this. Do you think, even if you've known someone who's gone to prison before, do you think you could have an unbiased picture as a juror on what truth is? Yes or no? And do you think, and so they did all these things, and what he was doing to me is because I was a pastor, he pegged me as having no ability to discern right from wrong and to be able to be a a law follower and those kinds of things. And so I answered scripture with scripture. Now again, I don't think this lawyer had any evil intent to try to twist Jesus' words and those things, but it was one of those moments where when someone comes at you, you go, that doesn't feel quite right. And you go, oh, that's why. God has put healthy tension in those two things. You lose all tension over here, you run off into a cult. Crazy things start to happen. You lose tension here, and it goes the opposite way over here. So basic principle Jesus teaches us, answer Scripture with Scripture. Here's what's fascinating about Scripture. Scripture doesn't just provide the answers we need. It provides the right questions. What, Jesus, what, what, what Satan does is he stirs up the wrong questions. The Bible provides, provides questions to us that we would never ask on our own. That's part of why we typically walk right through the scriptures. I have no idea what questions you're having. I know me. The questions I would want to ask are ones where I come out looking pretty good and that I don't wrestle with. I don't even know the right questions to ask. The Bible asks the right questions. Let me move on. Once again, this suggestive if. If you are the son of God. Church Satan goes after your identity. That is what he attacks. This started in the garden, right? Did God really say? I mean, he's trying to undo what God said. No cookies, come on. Did God really say that? And then what does he do? He alters the picture. If you eat of this fruit, you will become like God. What's he doing? He's attacking the identity of Adam and Eve. What was already true? God already said really clearly, don't touch. Simple, no. What else did he say? You're already made in my image. You are like God. In the way that I've designed it, you are created in my image. Satan comes along and questions that, seeks to undo that. You want to break through in your career and really go? Man, you take a bite of this fruit, you'll become like God. You're going to move your way up. God's holding you down. Man, does this sound familiar in the internal raging battles that go on with you? Someone said once this, that your identity is either received or achieved. God really gifts all of us our identity. We rebel against that when we don't just receive who God has told us who we are and instead try to achieve our way into our identity. Many of you will meet people in this valley and you'll say, hey, how's it going? What's your name? Good. And what do you do? 
That's it right there. It's sort of tied into where, and some of that, how wicked is this? Talk about vain glory. Some of that is pegging. Where where do I fit? Do do I, am I underneath you? Do I defer to you or am am I above you? Where do I fit in this social scenario? Man, those are the lines divided and drawn up by the flesh and by sin. Your identity is gifted from God. So God is not to be tempted, but he's to be trusted. And so Jesus answers him with scripture. Um, Let me move on. Jesus wins. Satan is sent scurrying, but only for a season. There's sort of this ominous thing that he's going to wait for an opportune time to come back. So what's the big takeaway? The big takeaway is this. There is a pattern that Jesus shows us of how to handle temptation. Every time he quotes from scripture. I want to show you that. But here's the bigger message. And here's the truth that I wrote on your, on your paper for you is this. It's not just that we have a pattern to follow. But a protector to trust in. So the secondary message is. Here's how you use the sword of the spirit. Here's how you do what Jesus did. And, and quote scripture back to temptation. The bigger message is this, that we have a protector to trust in. If we stop with just answering the devil with scripture, do you see that it rests on us? It rests on our ability to sword fight with a lion on our own. Church, that's not your lot in life. That is not what God has has given to you. We are to resist, but it's to be in the context of being in our fortress, in our stronghold, under the covering and refuge of Christ. James 4, 7, submit yourselves then to God. What does that mean? Get under! If it's, if it's rain, you get under an umbrella. If there's bombs falling, you get under your bomb shelter. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, James goes on to say. Come near to God and God will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. I left off last week with John 15. Abide in me. Stay with me. Rest in me. You know what's amazing? In our battle, we go running for the fort and the fort's coming to us. So we get under our covering. We get under our fort. How does Jesus handle temptation? He depends on the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 1. He's full of the Holy Spirit, and he's led by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 14. He exits this scenario onto his next test of rejection under the power of the Holy Spirit. So you do not win this battle with temptation in the flesh. It is a spiritual battle and requires spiritual means. There is a pattern here for us to follow. We remember that the temptation is not against people and institutions. People and institutions are slaves to an enemy of your soul in the unseen realm. They are doing his bidding. So your enemy is not your boss who produces wicked policies. You ought to pray for your boss. You ought to have you ought to pray God would open the your boss's eyes to see that. All of us were once enslaved to sin. Greater is he who is in you, child of God, than he who is in the world. That's the devil and his demons. 
So Jesus depends on the Holy Spirit. That's the pattern for us. He also uses the sword of the Spirit. Sword of the Spirit is Christian insider talk for the Bible. That's what Ephesians calls it. Sword of the Spirit. It's huge that each time that he's being tempted, Jesus quotes what God has already provided. So people say, I want a word from God. I say, good, he's already given it. Open your Bible. Is it all contained there? No. God uses our spirit to agree with our brothers and sisters, seem good to the Holy Spirit and to us, and so we moved in this, in this direction. But you want a word from God? Open your Bible. It's right there. It's not enough that your pastor, your parents, or your friends know the Bible. When you are isolated in the wilderness and Satan comes to tempt you, it's imperative that you've been feasting on the Word. It's imperative that you know the Word. Hear me, church, as your pastor, please get in the Word of God. I don't know how else better to equip you than to ensure that you're really a child of God and possess the Holy Spirit, all children of God do, and that you open your Bible and read it, meditate it. I can only read a verse a day. Great! Read a verse a day. If you read just a verse a day, start working on memorizing that verse. Get it in you. Get it in your head. The Bible is authoritative. Jesus simply speaks forth the word of God. Notice he doesn't explain it. He doesn't defend it. He doesn't justify it. Faith comes by hearing. There's power in the spoken word. So learn to use that. Every quote he does is from Deuteronomy. And if you memorize Deuteronomy to like have good devotion times, you don't see Deuteronomy embroidered a lot of places. It's something really powerful. God's teaching his heart and his priorities in history. What happens in Deuteronomy? It's the people of God failing the test in the wilderness. And Jesus in the wilderness winning the test. They're there for 40 years. He's here for 40 days. He quotes from Deuteronomy to show this. Every sentence in the Bible is worth chewing on. Even those weird, obscure places. I got you excited about genealogies last week for Pete's sake. It's an act of faith to say, God, I'm going to trust that somehow in this story of feeding on bread and manna and all that, that somehow you're going to use that in my life. Used it in Jesus' life. He knew the word inside out, and so he, he produced it. There's some really powerful things. Jesus' answers are not intellectual. They're not witty. He doesn't go into metaphysical arguments. They're not eloquent. They're not lengthy. Jesus' answers are simple and straightforward. Every answer of Jesus is simple enough for any of our children to understand and grasp. Every single one of his answers are right from the Bible. No specialized training to sort of unearth the details of what he's talking about. Man, there's a lot there for us to pattern our life after. Let me have the band come on up right now. I want to get really practical here for a second while they come forward. When you are tempted, first run for cover of protection and then use the sword of the Spirit. We're both to use the sword of the Spirit and be under the covering of our fortress. We sing really good theology here. We make a point of it. We just sang this. In the song, Whom Shall I Fear? You are my sword and shield. I didn't even see that until I'm singing it a few minutes ago. I'm like, that's my sermon. God, you, you've provided us the sword of the Spirit. But Spirit, you are the presence with us. You're the protector with us. We sing this as well. Yours is the victory. 
Friends, we get in on the victory Jesus had. Our high priest was like us in all respects, tempted and tested in all those ways, and yet without sin. Verse 16 goes on to say this, and this is what I leave you with. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace, catch this, to help in time of need. I want you to enter into this song that we're about to sing. As light always dispels the darkness, the truth of God comes in and always scatters the lies. We are going to sing forth the lies that the God of this world proclaims over us in a thousand ways. The song says it well. Fear is a liar. What casts out all fear? Perfect love does. As we sing this, maybe it would be helpful to imagine the covering that we have in Christ. We were baptized not only into His suffering, but we were baptized into all of His power that raises us to newness of life.